0: Hello, everyone. This is Linda Martin, a partner in our litigation group of Freshfields uh, out of our New York office, along with Mark Sansom and Michael Rolls. I'm one of our global co-heads of our class actions and collective claims group. I'm pleased to welcome everyone to this podcast, where we're going to focus on some of the points we discussed at our recent webinar on mass claims across the pond, comparing and contrasting risks. That was part of a larger global webinar series we've been doing on various challenges and developments in connection with class actions and mass claims regimes across the globe. During this podcast, we're going to look into how to deal with a couple of the challenges faced by those on the receiving end of mass claims and focusing on two aspects in particular, disclosure or discovery, uh, and defeating the class. To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Simon Dumcombe, a partner in our London office, Doro Gavril, a partner out of Silicon Valley, one of our new offices, and anne Laura Vincent, counsel in Paris. All right, turning to disclosure or, or discovery, as we call it in the United States, I think most people are aware, whether they're from a common law or a civil law system, that this is a very important aspect of U.S. civil lit- litigation. And the discovery that does get provided in a case can very much impact the way that a case proceeds. It can be, of course, a very expensive part of a litigation, and I think it's one of the things many people try to avoid. But one thing that we have found as class actions have proliferated across various jurisdictions across the globe is that trying to manage uh, the way that discovery will get handled across borders up front can pay dividends later uh, down the road. So it may be a little bit more costly, for example, to think, well, what will I do if this class action, if this mass claim becomes something that spreads outside of the jurisdiction where it was initially filed? But if you think upfront and you manage those document uh, costs upfront, you can sometimes stop the seepage of discovery from crossing borders. And Laura, how are you finding um, in civil jurisdictions that the impact of discovery, or what are you finding, the impact of discovery has been in class actions in, in France?
1: Well, well, actually, the extensive handing over of documents that you have in the U.S. and the U.K., especially those that are unhelpful to a party's case, is really not something that we're used to in civil jurisdiction. Save a few exceptions, our clients are used to limited disclosure of documents and mostly those helpful to their own case. So the whole disclosure or discovery exercise is really not familiar to them and the cost consequences difficult to understand or to bear. But Doru, as you and I have discussed, there are strategies that can be used to try to deal with this.
2: There sure are, anne Uh, There's a lot that you can do proactively. So um, there are two strategic vectors, the way I like to think about them, to pre-litigation conduct that can really help after discovery has begun. One is substantive and one is procedural. With respect to the substance part, one thing that you can do is really protect your principals, the high-level officers, the board. You can write thoughtful minutes. You can document presentations to the board. You can document actions by the board. You can document directives to lower level personnel. So the board is never, uh, or or officers or other important committees, are never caught on their wrong foot in terms of, well, you know, maybe they were negligent or they didn't take the appropriate action at the time. And the second point is procedural. And I think, Linda, you have some thoughts on that.
0: Well, we deal with this a lot, uh, yes, in our litigation. Particularly, it's come up as we've advised clients about discovery pursuant to 28 28- USC 1782, or what is known as Section 1782 Discovery. It's one of the devices that allows for discovery from the U.S. to be taken and used in tribunals and courts outside the U.S. So it's one of the places this question comes up most often, although not solely. And what we try to counsel clients, and we we do this a lot, is think about how you are setting up your document repositories or how are you sharing documents with people who may be in different jurisdictions? For example, a board member in the US, but the company is located in Germany. Is there a website that you will host the documents, but perhaps prohibit people from outside Germany, from downloading them or printing them? In other words, if somebody in the US is able to say that they have possession, custody, or or control of documents elsewhere, that is when they can be subject to U.S.-style discovery. So preventing it from falling into one of those categories, just from the way you run your business up front, is important. Or the way you structure who gets information within the various corporate entities of your global conglomerate. The U.S. does respect corporate separateness, for example. And so if an employee of one organization receives a discovery request in the United States, you can better prevent employees of a different corporate entity that's in another country from perhaps having to uh, produce documents pursuant to that subpoena. So again, the location of documents, servers, witnesses is all very important and and something that should be thought about just in the way a business is managed, even if there is no threat of litigation. It's also important to think about privilege, attorney-client privilege. Work product privilege, it's another concept that's not the same across jurisdictions. Uh, on you know, law is the, the civil law approach to privilege?
1: Well, Linda, we all know that privilege is broadly used to prevent some documents from being disclosed. But its scope can be very different from one jurisdiction to another. And as you said, especially in civil law countries where we do not have to defend discovery. So, for example, in France, there is no in-house privilege. The most important is that clients should be aware of the local rules so they may implement the best possible protection for their sensitive information.
0: I think ultimately, whatever the regimes in the different jurisdictions and whatever is said about limiting the excesses of the U.S. system, which it seems every non-U.S. country is trying to do as they implement their own regime, all defense lawyers in the various jurisdictions in which we've worked are seeking ways of defeating the class. So rather than just say the discovery aspect of protecting your client, there are the substantive ways to, uh, say, defeat a class action. Why don't we turn to Doru, who can start to address some of those?
2: Sure. And I think the first thing that you need to do is think about your regime and your jurisdiction and identify the inflection points in the life of that lawsuit. They will vary by jurisdiction, uh, but they will exist in every case. And so let's discuss really quickly some of the tactics that we have used very effectively in my own practice in securities litigation in the U.S. Uh, And I think that many of them can be tweaked and adapted to local conditions in other developing regimes. And and Simon and I are going to try to do that live. So the first thing is think about challenging the class representative or the class composition. Are there standing requirements maybe that they haven't met or that a part of the class wouldn't be meeting? For example, in a shareholder derivative lawsuit, the shareholder needs to have held stock continuously and contemporaneously. Have they done that? Can you test it? In a stock drop securities class action, the shareholder must have experienced the losses and or purchased in a specifically challenged offering. So those are important, critical threshold requirements. Simon, what do you think?
3: Yes, thanks, Dory. I agree with you completely. It's exactly the same in the UK. So although the UK securities litigation landscape is significantly less developed than you have in the US, a really important question here is whether the potential claimants are able to bring the claim at all. So if the claim is a trustee, for example, in a stock drop case, does the claimant have the legal personality and the capacity to sue and be sued in its own name? And in terms of timing, it's a good opportunity sometimes to take these points and apply pressure really early on. So in the UK, that would be by way of preliminary issue application, a part 18, request for further information, or even a potential strikeout application actually. And and what we see is that that really puts the onus back on the claimants' lawyers to do more work. And forcing them to do more work early on can mean that claimants drop out early or are less inclined to sign up in the first place. Um, Moving away from um, securities class actions, There's a similar opportunity to do that in consumer claims, where we can require claimants to complete detailed schedules of claimant information, as we call them, to test whether they have a good claim and to really force them to do some work to to allow them to join the group.
2: So It's very interesting you mentioned this. These challenges are generally raised pretty early in U.S. litigation as well. So I'll just give two examples. Um, In a recent case that we successfully concluded against a pharmaceutical company, our judge conducted a very early lead plaintiff hearing that resulted in the primary contender for the lead plaintiff to completely drop out of the lawsuit. And no other putative class representative came forward. So it was a very interesting dynamic. And the fact that nobody wanted to be class representative after being subjected to that scrutiny was very telling. Then you need to think very carefully about how you may be able to limit the class. It may seem like fairly boring, prosaic, procedural step, but it can have a huge impact on the damages. In a, in a lawsuit a few years ago against a very significant provider of, of cybersecurity services, the plaintiffs were challenging a $1 billion secondary offering. What we did was to restrict the class to only those individuals who purchased stock on the day of the offering itself, And we reduced the quantum of damages so much that we could settle the case for $10 million or 1%.
3: Thanks, sorry, That's really interesting. I mean, we don't have um, an equivalent standalone procedural step in the UK, but there are opportunities to limit or challenge the class at multiple different stages. Um, And one point at which that opportunity arises is, when it comes to shaping the way that the court approaches the common issues. So where a group litigation order is made in the UK, the courts tend to allow quite a lot of flexibility Mm -hmm. to the parties in terms of how they determine the class. And very often that's done through a process of negotiating what we call the standard minimum requirements that must be fulfilled to participate in one of our group claims. So similarly to your example, a common SMR might well be that the claimant needed to own whatever the asset in the litigation Um, relates to, so whether it's a share or some other product, at a very specific point in time. So pretty much exactly the same as you were describing. And similarly, when it comes to lead case selection in the UK, there's another opportunity for the parties there. So the parties have to agree, firstly, how many lead cases there will be and who from the overall court of claimants will act as those lead cases. And there's often a huge range of individual cases in play, which can really vary in terms of their merits and the likely damages, consequences that would flow from their specific cases. So that means that selecting these lead cases is very time intensive, a really complex exercise. And each party is really looking to balance finding the cases that are representative of the wider cohort, but also ensuring that they are winning ones and they are helpful strategically for that party's case. So fascinating and can be a really important step in the UK. And handing back to you, I'm keen to hear about class certification in the US.
2: Yeah, class certification is the next uh, leverage point or inflection point in our roadmap here. So at class certification, defendants first get an opportunity to depose the class representative to determine their motivation, their commitment to the case. Believe it or not, that happened last year in a a litigation involving a very large social media company where the day before we were supposed to take the deposition of the class representative, the class representative completely dropped out of the case. So, again, a very telling dynamic. There has always also been more recently innovation um, at the class certification stage with more arguments being brought from the summary judgment stage, which comes later, to class certification to defeat for example, loss causation and other things like that that I think we're going to be talking about in a little bit.
3: That's really interesting. Um, We don't have as rich a history of class certification to draw upon as you, Doru, because the only opt-out proceedings in the UK which have that step are competition follow-on damages claims, and we're still very much finding our feet in how the certification step should work. But under the relevant competition appeal tribunal rules, the tribunal will ask itself whether the representative is the right person to represent the class. They check that... There's no material conflict with the class members. They, they ask themselves whether the class rep has got a plan for managing the proceedings and that they've got the right funding arrangements. So lots of criteria that they assess. And so far, these challenges have proved to be a bit of a roadblock here, actually, because it's been almost four years since the first claims were filed. And none of them have yet passed the certification stage.
2: So I hope, Simon, that our uh, listeners today are also sensing that even though there isn't a formal procedural step in every regime, the same tools have a lot of applicability. And for example, the next step in U.S. securities litigation in terms of finding a leverage point comes with loss causation. In a securities class action, you have to show as the plaintiff that the alleged misrepresentation was the proximate cause of the stock drop that harmed you. Defendants can attack loss causation in multiple ways. For example, they can raise legal arguments saying that the alleged disclosure, corrective disclosure that revealed the truth, does not actually match any of the alleged misrepresentations. So the stock dropped for independent reasons. But more importantly, loss causation can become a battle of experts. So you have Professor so-and-so and and Professor such-and-such, and the two of them discuss the economic implications of this the absence of a jury in European regimes may turn out to be a very interesting um, feature perhaps of those regimes in terms of instilling predictability and promoting a scientific approach to these issues that sometimes um, you're not going to find outside of a bench trial
3: in the United States. Yes, thanks Dora I, c- I completely agree actually listening to that although obviously we don't have the same jury trial system as you would have for civil claims. The battleground for causation is just as crucial here. So, again, it invariably involves multiple rounds of expert evidence. And there's one important additional challenge for claimants to overcome in UK shareholder class actions, which is reliance. So, here, individual claimants have to prove that they relied on the event which is said to have caused the loss. So our courts don't allow claimants to rely on establishing that there was a general fraud on the market, as I believe you have in the US. So in practice, that can be really tricky for these claimants to show that they individually relied on the relevant announcements or the public information that was put out there. Um, And then just one final thought from me on challenges related to the loss that's being claimed is that there have been instances where the English courts have focused on the class representative's proposed methodology for distributing damages. So English courts have so far rejected potential class actions where it was proposed that damages would be awarded to a group of, let's say, millions of consumers, but they should be shared out sort of pro rata or equally to all members of the class rather than than being distributed by reference to the individual losses suffered by each member of the class. And that's quite interesting, and it can prove a significant barrier in some of these really big consumer class actions. Because the key takeaway there is that the UK courts are likely to refuse to certify where the damages aren't truly compensatory in nature.
0: You know, all of that's really um, very interesting to listen to. And I think the big takeaway that I really uh, see in all of this is that um, various jurisdictions around the globe are implementing class action and mass claims regimes. They're all at various stages of development. I think one of the things we've seen just in the last say five years since the, the VW diesel matter started was that some regimes in Europe, for example, Germany, have implemented or, or tweaked existing class action regimes, mass claims regimes, recognizing some of the disparities and results in how consumers are benefiting uh, from those claims. So for example, in the VW case, which involves 90 countries, the U.S. went first and you saw that consumers there received a a fair amount of compensation as compared with uh, consumers in Germany, for example, where VW is based. And I think that left people feeling very unsettled. So what I've seen is that, as I mentioned earlier, people do want to avoid what they see as the excesses of the U.S. system, perhaps punitive damages, travel damages. And yet, they're still trying to come up with something that approximates a result for consumers that's viewed as a little bit more fair. So, I think there's going to be a lot more development in in the years to come, and while we are at various points, uh, as Doru said, there is so much crossover between the various tools and and what's happening in the U.S. is being looked at as a, a roadmap forward, and I think there'll be a lot more learning we're going to see in the years to come. I want to thank you, Simon uh, Daru Anlar, for joining me today, and thank our listeners for listening in.